some of your favorite, famous firsts that have happened in history uh, that still affect us today. In 1920, Babe Ruth is the first person to get a one-to-one kind of game, but it's now it's it's all about the home runs, which we see all the time today. Uh, in 1939, FDR is the first president to speak on TV and interrupt everybody's shows in the middle of a week. Um, and then in 1973, the first cell phone came out. In 1973, the first cell phone came out. It weighed two pounds. It held a charge for 30 minutes. And it took 10 hours to get fully charged. 1973. Famous first. And so we take that and we, we build on it. But those were the trailblazers. Those were the first to go forward and change things. And Mark is like that. The gospel of Mark is something that changes everything else. Before Mark, we're going to talk about it in a little bit. But before Mark was written, there wasn't a written account of what Jesus had done, what Jesus had said. Stories were being told. Stories were being passed around. But there wasn't a written uh, copy until Mark's gospel. And so this morning we're going to do a little bit, since we're jumping into this book, and if you're new with us, a guest with us, what we like to do most of the time is we take a book of the Bible and we just walk straight through it. If you've been here since like April, you don't believe me because we've done a lot of topical series this year, but in general what we do is we take a book and we just walk straight through it, and that's what we're going to do with the gospel of Mark. So this morning we're going to do a little bit of background work and then uh, we're going to jump in. So please uh, buy your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, God, we thank you again for today, for this chance to celebrate and rejoice uh, and just enjoy your presence, God. We come here this morning uh, to be equipped, to be challenged, to find rest. We come here this morning uh, to be filled up so that we can go out into the world and be the light of the world that you have called us to be. God, you tell us over and over in scriptures that if we come looking for you, you will show up. And so, Lord, we come this morning as we open up the Gospel of Mark, as we start this new series, we are seeking after you, we are expecting you, and so, God, we ask that you reveal yourself, speak to us this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name, amen. So before we jump into the text, I want to give us a little bit of background and so we're all on the same page about what, uh, what's happening when we get into the Gospel of Mark. So let's start with the who. Who is Mark? Uh, if you have a Bible background, you flip real quickly through the 12 disciples, you'll know that Mark is not one of them. He is not one of the original 12 disciples, but he is in Scripture. He's in, uh, mentioned about 10 different times throughout the New Testament, most of those times in the book of Acts. Um, what we do know from the book of Acts is that it was in Mark's mother's house that the early church was meeting. When Peter is released from jail, uh, he ends up in a late night visit. He ends up at his, Mark's mother's house. Um, Mark is, uh, showed up, like I said, about ten different times. The Apostle Paul, one of the most, he wrote most of the New Testament. He planted many churches all over the place. Uh, he, is, he has a normal traveling companion named Barnabas. The two of them went out, planted churches together, did ministry together. Barnabas' cousin is Mark, our author. Um, and so Mark and Barnabas and Paul go together on the first of what's known as Paul's missionary trips, where he's out planting churches, preaching the gospel, spreading the gospel into the Gentiles. Um, halfway during the trip, Mark bails. Mark goes home. Uh, and this causes a big rift between Paul and Mark. Later on, uh, Mark is not wanted, not welcome on Paul's missionary journey. And there's a big issue between them. And so instead, Mark goes traveling with Barnabas. Um, 
And so you have an issue with the Apostle Paul. You're in pretty deep water in the New Testament church. But somewhere along the way, there's reconciliation, there's grace, because Christians should be able to reconcile their differences, work their things out. And so we find out later on uh, that Mark becomes instrumental in Paul. Paul asks um, that Mark be sent to him while he's in prison because he would be of great use to him. And so Mark and Paul are able to reconcile, be in ministry once again. Mark's other big relationship that we see in the New Testament is with the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 5, Peter is writing to the church and he refers to Mark as his son. In the same kind of language that Paul uses to Timothy, father to son, this spiritual mentor, mentee kind of relationship. They have this very close relationship. They spent a lot of time together, especially near the end of Peter's life while he is in Rome. And it's this relationship that most scholars believe is where the Gospel of Mark comes from. Early historians wrote that while it was Mark's hand, it's Peter's accounts and Peter's teachings about Jesus that fill the Gospel of Mark. Much of this Gospel, as we're going to find out, much of this Gospel is written in first-person view. It's, most of it is present tense. It's written from the point of view of somebody who was there. But as we said, Mark wasn't one of the original 12, and so he's writing on behalf of Peter. He's writing from someone who was obviously there. Mark is writing uh, on behalf of the Apostle Peter, the leader of the disciples. So who's he writing to? Mark is mostly writing to Gentile Christians, specifically Christians located in Rome. So these are Gentile Christians. Gentile means non-Jewish Christians. And so what you see, and we see that throughout the gospel, you're going to see where where Mark is quoting Jesus. Jesus is speaking Aramaic, and he translates it within the gospel because a non-Jewish person is not going to know Aramaic. Certain Jewish customs and festivals are explained in in greater detail than they would if you were writing to an actual Jewish person. Even time in this gospel is measured with Roman language because he's writing to people who grew up in that culture. It's written to a people outside of the Jewish faith. So when was the gospel written? The gospel of Mark is written between somewhere between 50 AD and 65 AD, roughly 20 to 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. Why does that matter to us? Mark's gospel, along with Matthew and Luke's gospel, are known as the synoptic gospels. It's because the three of them share many accounts, many teachings, and sequences, sometimes words themselves. Whole chunks are verbatim in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because Mark is dated the earliest, it seems that Matthew and Luke's gospel use Mark's writings not only for content, but also for style. Because again, this style, this genre of writing didn't exist before Mark wrote it. He was the first one. The genre of gospel, the telling of the teachings and works of Jesus, didn't exist before Mark. So everything Mark did, everything in him writing this, is setting a new standard. He is the trailblazer, creating something that hadn't happened before. And so while the accounts of Jesus' life, as I said earlier, were told and passed around in stories, there wasn't a written collection like this until Mark's gospel. And so his influence is massive. It has great, great, large influence on what Matthew and Luke ended up doing. The other thing to consider in Mark's gospel and when it was dated between 50 and 65 AD is what's going on in history at that time, specifically what's going on in Rome. History buffs know at the same time that that's written, uh, the emperor at the time of Rome was Emperor Nero. Nero started off his reign as a just, well-liked, great emperor. He was fair, he was honest. That lasted all of about five or six years. And then Nero lost his mind. He becomes unpredictable, erratic, hostile. He is alienating. Even the rest of the Roman government is alienated 
and dislikes Nero. He does whatever he wants. He doesn't follow any of the rules, and he is unpredictable. Things get very out of hand under Nero. In fact, a fire gets started in Rome. This fire lasts for six days. It destroys large chunks of the city. The reasoning of why this fire was started isn't entirely clear, but most historians, most popular belief is that it was under Nero's command that the fire was started in Rome. And what we do know is right after the fire was put out, Nero shows up and he starts to make sure that uh, food is pr- provided, housing, temporary housing is provided. He's throwing a lot of government money to rebuild the city, trying to basically come in like the hero to fix everything, to make everything better, when in actuality he's the one who caused the fire. And so all of the money he's throwing around to try and fix Rome isn't making anyone feel better because the people want to know who started this in the first place. And so Nero decides to blame the Christians. The Christians at that time in Rome were not very well liked. They were kind of seen as as weird, as outcasts. They didn't partake in many of the normal festivals and many of the normal celebrations of the city, of the pagan city. And so they were kind of off in this, this weird outcast society. And so Nero says, it was them. They started the fire. And now great, uh, everyone rallies together and says, well, let's get the Christians. And so many, many Christians get arrested. And based on that first group getting arrested, they start telling information about where these Christians are at, where they're hiding, and a lot more Christians start getting captured, start getting arrested all over Rome. Not only are they being arrested, but they're being beaten. Nero has them crucified. He would dress them up in animal skins, and he would feed them to wild dogs. He would take them and put them up on a pole and light them on fire as a human torch for his parties and his festivals. In his garden, you would see Christians up on poles lighting the party. That's the situation the Christians find themselves in as the Gospel of Mark is beginning to circulate. As as the Gospel of Mark is starting to make its way into the Christians' hands, they're living in an evil, chaotic, sinful world. So why was Mark written? Mark was written as a message of hope. It's a message of hope in the face of persecution. It's a reminder to the Christians that no matter what they are about to face at the hands of the government, at the hands of the people, at those against the church, that Jesus has already gone through it all. There was nothing that they would experience that Jesus hadn't already dealt with. Were you betrayed by a fellow Christian? Jesus was betrayed by one of the twelve. Were you beaten? Were you, did you end up maybe having to see death? Jesus experienced it all. There's nothing that you're going to deal with in this persecution, Christians, that Christ hasn't gone ahead and done already. It's a message of hope that Jesus came with a purpose and a plan, enduring all that Satan could throw at him, and comes out on the other side victorious. The other big reason that Mark's gospel is written is that it emphasizes service and sacrifice. Not only that of Jesus, but what we as Christians are called to live out in light of Jesus. One of the key verses of the gospel of Mark, we're going to get there uh, in a couple of weeks, but it's Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that's what we see over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark. Christ came to serve us by going to the cross and taking on the penalty for sin that we are all under. He serves and in turn shows us, teaches us what it means to serve one another. Service and sacrifice. This is going to be a theme that dominates a lot of the Gospel of Mark. 
Mark doesn't record as much of Jesus' teachings as Matthew or Luke does, but Mark instead focuses on the action. He focuses on the service, on the events. That's why we're calling this series, And Then. Because the way Mark is written, as Peter is describing these things to him, almost every other paragraph starts with, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then we went here, and then Jesus did this. You're also over and over going to see the word immediately, or now. You get this sense of being right in the midst of the story. Peter is telling these things, wanting these things to get out for the people to understand. It gives Mark's gospel this feeling of Peter retelling his experiences and Mark just scribbling it down as fast as he can. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then we went here, and then Jesus walked on water, and then he fed all these people. It was amazing. Mark is focused on showing us just how Jesus lived the role of servant, and while he was on earth through his actions, through the way he cared, through the way he experienced this earth, he shows us this is what it means to serve others. And in doing so, he challenges us. He challenges us to look at our own life and examine whether or not our faith takes action. Do we actually believe the words in the Bible? Do we actually believe that the Bible is the living, breathing word of God? Do we take the things it says and actually put it into practice Or is it just a bunch of head knowledge? Do we actually live these things out? If someone was retelling your story, if someone was retelling your life as a Christian, would there be much action in that story? So with all of that in mind, of the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, let's jump into the Gospel of Mark. Pick it up with me in verse 1. beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's stop right there. Yeah, it's going to be one of those kind of series. Yeah. We got a lot to unpack. The beginning. Just this word alone, this has implications that tie us back to the original beginning, and it ties us throughout history and beyond. Our God is a God of beginnings. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Before there was anything else, there was God. Everything starts with him. Everything begins with him. He speaks and life happens. Creation happens. He made the very first beginning happen. In the beginning, he created everything. And it was good. He creates man and woman, and it was good. In the beginning, there was peace There was shalom. There was harmony. Humans wanted for nothing because everything we needed, everything humans needed was provided for by God. Everything came from Him. They could trust in Him, rely on Him. Everything was good. And then sin enters the world. Adam and Eve decide, I know better than God. I want to be my own God. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree and chaos and death and sin enter and destroy things. That's the first half of Genesis 3. The second half of Genesis 3, there's a promise. It's a promise of a new beginning. A promise of one who's going to restore things, who's going to reconcile things, who's going to fix what has been broken by sin. A new beginning gets promised in Genesis 3 because our God is a God of beginnings. And if you keep reading through Genesis, you get to Abraham. God calls Abraham from the wilderness. He says, Abraham... He tells them, there's going to be a new beginning through you. A beginning of a people set apart as my people. 
A people I will be with, I will walk with, I will care for, I will set apart as mine. I'm going to start something new. I'm going to make a new beginning, a new people through you, Abraham. I will give you descendants. I will give you land. You will have a home and a place. You will be united. God makes a new beginning based on a relationship with him. That's where new beginnings come from. It's a relationship with God. And over and over we see in the Old Testament, Israel mess things up. Sin and rebel over and over and over again. They fight. They decide they know better than God. And then when things get finally get really ugly, get really messy, they're slaves, they're being oppressed, they find themselves just corrupted by sin, and they call out to God, and every time, God would show up and give a new beginning. There would be forgiveness and grace. God shows his grace throughout history. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. And over and over again, the Israelites would cry out for forgiveness. Even though they didn't deserve it, God would give it to them and say, okay, let's start again. Here's a new beginning for you. Let's try this again. We see this over and over throughout the Old Testament. You get to the very end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 ends with this. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God says, I'm going to send you Elijah. Elijah is known as the greatest prophet. We're going to talk about him next week. The greatest prophet. He is the, stereo- he is the, he is the poster boy for what a prophet is. He says, I'm going to send you Elijah. He's been dead and buried for a long time at this point. But he says, I'm going to send you a prophet. I'm going to send you a great prophet again. This promise of a prophet, this promise of an awesome day is coming. But then there's silence. That page in your Bibles between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, that signifies 450 years with no prophets, no judges, no men or women to stand up and proclaim truth. Just silence. There's a promise of a new beginning and then nothing. Until we see this man out in the desert. He's dressed in camel hair. He's eating flies and honey. And he's got a simple message to the people. Repent and be baptized because one is coming who is greater than anything else you've ever seen. That one he is talking about, he shows up and everything changes. A new beginning has entered into the world. A new beginning has been made possible because Jesus has arrived. This is the beginning of that promise from Genesis 3. That new start, that fresh start, the grace that God has been giving and offering throughout history now is made completely and fully manifest in Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. In the Greek, it's euangelion. And what I learned in studying for getting ready for Mark this morning is that Christians did not come up with this word. This is not a Christian word. This word gospel actually has political and pagan ties to it. Among the Romans, it meant joyful tidings, and it was often associated with the cult of the emperor. The emperor of Rome believed that he was not only appointed by God, but somehow divine in his leadership. And so when celebrating the emperor's birthday or ascension to power or just because he felt like throwing a party for himself, 
when festivals would be held, when occasions for the whole world to come and celebrate him, these festivals were called, were called euangels, joyful tidings, joyful events. A calendar inscription from 9 BC talks about uh, Emperor Octavian, Augustus, and it says, the birthday of the God was the world, the beginning of joyful tidings, which has been proclaimed on his account. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings which has been proclaimed on his account. Did you hear that? Did you hear the similarity there between what was inscribed about this emperor and how Mark begins his gospel? It really solidifies. Mark here is making a political statement. He's telling you, here's what a euangelion is. It's a historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. Something new, something different. So with, ju- with that in mind, just by using the phrase, the beginning of the gospel, Mark is declaring Jesus' coming as an event that brings about something wholly new and different for all of humanity. A life-changing event has happened. Here, Mark is saying, the beginning of the gospel. But this good news, this joyful tidings, isn't just another human It's not another king or prince or emperor or president. It isn't another sinful, flawed man trying to take all the power and show how impressive he can be. No, what Mark is saying is that the good news is that God has come. That Christ has come. This is the good news that everything really is different this time because God has finally stepped into humanity. This is the beginning of the gospel, of the good news that while we have sinned, while we have fallen short of the perfection that God has expected of us, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' name, it's the Greek version of the name Joshua. Joshua means the Lord is salvation. This Jesus has come. His very name declares who he is and what he's going to do. He will bring salvation. He will bring new life. He will bring a payment for the debt that we owe due to our sin, our rebellion. He will buy us out from slavery to sin that we find ourselves trapped in. He'll do that with his life. Jesus will bring us hope because the Lord is salvation. It's what he does. He brings hope. He brings new life. Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. Messiah. Anointed one. Chosen one. Set apart one. This man is not just a man. He is the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3 thousands of years ago. The one who is going to restore all things, fix all things. The one who is going to bring hope and life and newness. This is the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one God's people have been waiting for. That over and over throughout history, that God has reminded and whispered to the Israelites, I haven't forgotten you. I'm still for you. I'm still sending one. He's going to fix things. He's going to restore things. Just hold on a little longer. This is the good news that that one has come. But he isn't just a man chosen by God to fill that role. He isn't just a man chosen by God to be set apart. He isn't just another Moses or Abraham or Elijah. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God himself. Perfection 
in the flesh, the all-powerful, almighty creator of all existence. Everything that has been made has been made through him and with him, has sent his son to enter into creation. Fully God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, both at the same time. Right here, Mark is declaring right off the bat, right at the beginning of his gospel, that this is the good news, that yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one, but he is also God in the flesh. God has entered into the humanity he created. Mark, in one verse, presents Jesus as he is, the divine, eternal son. So there is no mistake, no misconception about who he is, what he has come to do, what it is that Mark is writing about. Right off the bat, cards on the table, Jesus is God. This verse right here is the affirmation of the deity of Jesus and the unique relationship he has to the Father. This verse is almost like a a subtitle, really, for the whole book of Mark. Mark wants to make it abundantly clear right away what this book is about. It's about a God who brings new beginnings. It's about a God who brings forgiveness and hope and life and grace. All of these things come through Jesus. And that's good news. It's good news because we don't have to try and impress. We don't have to try and earn. We don't have to try and wonder about how does God feel about us today. I wonder if God likes us. I wonder if he's in a good mood. I wonder if I can do enough to try and impress God and make him like me more. No, you can't. It frees us from living this exhausted lifestyle of trying to have to pretend like everything is great all the time. And when you do fail, when you do sin, you you then feel this burden of guilt and shame and condemnation, and it's exhausting. And so what the gospel says is you don't have to live into that anymore. Because then on top of that, you have to then try and make the world think everything's great. You've got to put on this mask that says, no, I got this. I got this totally under control. I have this... I don't need anyone's help. I don't need anything from anybody. It's exhausting. And it's frustrating. The Gospel of Mark is an account of God telling us, this isn't about you. It's not about your abilities. This is about the new beginning that you need. This is about the new beginning found in Jesus. And that's good news. There's new life. There's new hope there. Good news that needs to be celebrated. Good news that needs to be embraced and reflected on daily. Because too often, I think, we reduce the gospel to the the basics, to the bare minimum. When in actuality, the gospel speaks into every aspect of humanity and life. It's too good. It's too big. It's too awesome to just be this thing running in the background of our minds. No, instead it should be the thing on the forefront of our minds, on the tip of our tongues at all times. The gospel, the good news that there is hope and life and redemption only through the coming of Jesus. And it's only through Jesus. It's Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's not Jesus plus you. It's not Jesus plus your good works or plus your money or plus how nice you are. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Jesus plus anything else means really you don't believe in Jesus at all. This new beginning, this good news comes through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promise made thousands of years ago. It's a tangible example that God is trustworthy, that God is for you and not against you, that he will not leave you or abandon you. He will not forget you. He is always paying attention. 
God knows that life is messy. God knows that life is hard. God knows that we live in a world that is marred by sin and ugly. He knows just what sin has done to his creation. And Mark's gospel is a reminder to us that Jesus experienced temptation. He experienced the darkness that this world had to offer. And he came out the other side, the victor. And he says, you can too, because of me. In Christ, you too will come out the other side redeemed and refreshed and renewed. God was paying attention to all that Jesus experienced, all the good and the bad. He didn't check out. He didn't stop caring. He didn't say, hey, I'll see you at the end. Jesus' suffering mattered to God. Your suffering matters to God. He's still paying attention. He's paying attention to your struggles. And in Christ, there is hope and there is strength and power. You are not alone and you are not the first one to go through the things you are going through. Hebrews 4 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Which means Christ knows, he's experienced what you have experienced, and he can sit and say, I remember what it was like to experience that. I remember how that felt. I remember going through that. I know the pain that you are experiencing, and I, hear, I see it, and I'm here for you. I'm paying attention, and I will not let you fall. I will not let you fail. I will not let you go. This new beginning, this grace, this hope only comes through the Messiah, the Son of God. Over and over throughout the Bible, and over and over throughout history, we have seen godly men and women step into leadership, some just regular, normal people standing up for truth. We've seen over and over, we have these men and women in the Bible, we have these men and women throughout history who are, we hold up as these Christian pillars, and it's great to have those people to look to. But not a one of them, no matter how good or how great or holy they seem, not a one of them was God in the flesh. None of them could do what Christ has done. It is in Christ's perfection, in the fact that He is God in the flesh, that He could endure the cross, endure the wrath of God for all sin throughout all time, and defeat it, and leave it buried in the grave when He rose from the dead. And in doing so, in Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, going into the grave, and coming up unbeaten, unharmed by sin, in Christ we find new life. In Christ, we find new hope. To anyone who would admit their need for a Savior, believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and confess their faith in Christ and Him alone, there is hope and new life. Not just later in eternity, but also now, here. It's life-changing now and here. And this only happens because Jesus is who He said He is, the Messiah, the Son of God. Some of you grew up in church, and some of you have studied the Gospels, have studied Mark, you've heard sermons preached on Mark over and over again. And I think if you did that, if if you're one of those people who has that church background, it's our nature to sometimes skip some of these things, because it's old, because we know it, because it's basic, it's the Gospel. But the realities, the realities of what Mark is writing about, God coming into the flesh on a mission to suffer and die for humanity, that is not something to be skimmed or glossed over. Mark was written to a bunch of people trying to figure out how to be a Christian in a world that didn't want to make it easy for you to be a Christian. 
in a world that wanted nothing to do with Christ or with God, in a world that was coming down on them and attacking them for their faith, a world that was feeling the political and social effects of sin, the chaos that sin brings with it. Don't tell me the Bible's not living and active, because it's 2018 and this still plays. Because in that setting, Mark was writing a message of hope. There is something important that happened that you need to know. Hope for when we are beaten and tired and exhausted by this world or exhausted by our own sinful decisions, by the choices that we have made or by the choices and effects that others have made against us. This this gospel is a message of hope in those times. It's a message that says God can, Jesus can sympathize, he can empathize, and he is for us and not against us. And it's not just sending us good vibes, but he is with us. He is strengthening us. He's not just, hey, I'm thinking about you. No, he's with us in the battle, in the temptation, in those moments. He is with us, strengthening us, reminding us, calling out to saying to us, I am with you and I'm not going anywhere. Because Christ is with us, we can do much more than just survive, just get through this life. Because Christians are not called to just survive, to just exist. It's not you get saved and then you put your feet up and wait till Christ return. We're not called to merely just exist, but we are called to live in the same manner that Jesus lived. A life of service and of sacrifice, taking action. Letting the reality of our faith drive us to live it out. We serve and we sacrifice on the behalf of others for their good, just as Christ modeled for us by going to the cross. And we can do the same thing by reveling and rejoicing and celebrating and resting in the fact that our God is a God of new beginnings. That there is grace and hope found in Him. That He grants us unlimited beginnings for His children. It is good news to be had that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah that God had promised. God in the flesh to bring hope, to bring life, and to teach us, to show us what it means to live in such a way that we don't come just to be served, but to serve. There is life to be had there and hope in that. And it starts with putting our faith in Christ and never letting go or losing sight of what Christ has done for us and in us. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this creation that you have given us, the the common graces we take for granted, the, the warmth of sunshine, the colors of flowers, the taste of a hot dog at a picnic. God, we thank you for all the many ways that you bless us on a regular daily basis. And God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to come and die for us. To come and live and show us what it means to serve. What it means to to care for others. Sending your son to die for us to give us new life and new hope. Life-changing, life-altering relationship with you. That we're not just saved from sin, but saved to be a blessing to others. Lord, help us to be that blessing. Help us to be the light in the world you have called us to be. God, help us, especially those who have grown up in church, those of us who have grown up hearing these, reading the Gospels and know these things. Lord, help us to not lose sight and lose 
lose the understanding and the importance of what the gospel is. The reality of how bad we needed it and how good it is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. Help us not to take that for granted, but to be the driving factor of every decision, every moment-by-moment decision we make. Let it be driven by our love of the gospel. Our desire to show that same kind of grace to others. To be the ones who can point others toward you, so that they might come to experience it themselves. God, we thank you for... God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what you have for us in this series. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, to come to earth to die for us. And Lord, I pray if anyone here doesn't know you, hasn't put their faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, that today is the day that whatever walls, whatever things they have put up to that message, Lord, that they break those things down, those things are thrown to the side so that you can come in and show them there is life to be had at the cross of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in and through us because of the power of Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name.